so in our last episode, I gave you a sort of joke New Year's resolution, but I did actually think about what my real New Year's resolution is, and you're going to think it's ridiculous, but I'm actually being serious. Okay. I want to become a gay icon. Okay. okay. I don't know how many queer listeners we have, but I think they need to start appreciating me more. Well. I want them to dress up as me for Halloween. That's uh, how you know you've made it. I will not rest until the queers start leaving me little offerings, so I bless them with an abundant harvest. Yeah, that seems like quite a good uh, aim. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. This licorice all sort over here is Daniel. And, uh, saltwater taffy. <laughs> Over there's Abby. So we're back from our break. There might be some more of those to come over the year. Uh, we apologize. But you're all just going to have to deal with it and instead focus on how powerful and magical we make you feel today when you put us in your ear holes. It's mm. kind of like um having the first drag on your Siggy of the day. So, Daniel, we have quite a few letters in our inbox. Do you want to read some of them? Yes. Here's a letter from Roddy. Hi, Abby and Daniel. Hello. That's me responding. <laughs> I have now listened to every episode in order. The show was recommended to me by a co-worker. I wonder where you work. And we've, we've both been enjoying your commentary. And we've joked that we both just miss talking about books in English class slash college seminars. You both are hilarious, by the way. I've never laughed so much listening to a podcast. Oh, wow. hey. Yeah, that's pretty good. I just wanted to let you and Daniel know that there is a background story for Tichuba. Oh, from our, um, the Crucible episode. The, all the way back then. I, I, don't I wanted there to be a... I don't remember that. But it's also, it was in the um, Gene Reese one where I said that Tichuba should get... When we did White Sag SOC, so... As soon as I finish recording and editing an episode, I never think no, about me it neither. again. Yeah, it just goes... You it's... guys could say that we said anything in a previous yeah. episode. I'd be like, yeah, probably. It's entitled... See, I don't think this could be about Tichuba because the title's quite ambiguous. It's entitled, I Tichuba, <laughs> Black Witch of Salem. It's originally written in French, but there was at least one good translation. I have a lot of books I'd love to hear you both talk about, but I will not bog you down with a list that you will not likely need. I just hope that Paradise Lost is on there somewhere. Mm. Mm. Maybe you mm. should stay tuned for this season, maybe. Yeah. Wink. Thank you for the laughs. It's wonderful to listen to you both talk about so many books that I've read. It makes me feel like I'm, I still get to be in conversation with those texts instead of randomly dragging my co-workers <laughs> into my antics regarding classic literature. Thank you for everything, Roddy. That's nice, Aww, isn't it? Poor, poor co-workers as well. I feel like we should set up an appeal for these co-workers. <laughs> if you have been harmed yeah. by saving me from my shop, yeah, class action lawsuit. Yeah. I want to know where you work. What are the main jobs? Zookeeper. Um, gay icon. Uh, <laughs> should I read? Should I read the next one? Yeah, do you want so this one is from Amanda. Hello from across the pond in Arkansas, USA. Love the podcast. 
Incredibly, I didn't get a lot of exposure to great literature when pursuing my bachelor's degree in nursing, <laughs> so to hear it broken down in language that I myself would use when describing books makes it so much more approachable. Amanda, we love to hear that. We're trying to do a big study on this podcast eventually about how irreverence sort of helps people with learning, so stay tuned, because this might actually be like a piece of research, and you might be a, a case study. Whoa. Poked and prodded. I'm not caught up on all episodes, so I apologize if anything has changed and you are no longer taking recommendations. We always will, forever. I would love to hear your take on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I read it about a decade ago for quote-unquote fun, mm. and it was anything but. Mm. I slogged through all those goddamn lists of genus and species and descriptions of marine life that would put even the most passionate biologist to sleep. And for what? For Jules Verne to fucking phone it in on the only part of the book that would have been interesting. The whole time the question is, yeah, but how did he escape? And he f***ing blacked out and can't remember. Hey. Infuriating. I wish my memory of the book was as good as his memory of his escape. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, Amanda. It is boring, isn't it? I remember thinking that Journey to the Center of the Earth was a lot more fun. I read it once maybe 15 years ago, and I just remember thinking... For a book set under the sea, it has no business being this dry. Yeah, very um, good. Yeah. I read it as a child, and I remember it was like the first big book I read as a child, and it was where I learned about North Northwest, the one between Northwest North and North. And I kind of feel like no child should have to know about North Northwest. <laughs> you know, like those sorts of. It's very. It is dry, isn't it? Here at Ashton University, we have started up an MA in English program. Uh, so if you would like to be taught by Daniel and I, please do join us for our MA in English. We also have an undergrad. I teach a lot of classes on it. Please just come study English at Aston. It's a good time here. We have a lot of fun. So Daniel, what is our text today? Okay, so we're covering a historical novel from the 19th century, which I think you'll agree is the foundational era in the history of historical novels. What are historical novels as a genre known for? They have to do what we do every episode, set the scene, outline the historical, cultural and social milieu of the work setting. Now this novel we're doing today boasts one of the classic set the scenes. But is it any good? You tell me. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received, for good or evil, in the superlative degree of comparison only. Now what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. Anyway, we're doing A Tale of Two Cities, 1859, by Mr. Charles Dickens. You phoned that one in. Yeah. So it goes without saying, we are about to spoil this book for you. Just to let you know what we're going to be talking about today, there are a lot of beheadings, madness, starvation, mob mentality, hit-and-run accidents, dead children, and sexual assault. So if none of that is your cup of tea, then turn this off. Would you like to do some background, please? Yes. Right. We've covered Charles Dickens before, haven't we, in our Christmas Carol episode? Yeah, back in 1843, when he wrote A Christmas Carol, Dickens was kind of newly a very famous author. He'd only just arrived on the scene in the 1830s. He'd written, you know, novels like The Pickwick Papers and Oliver Twist, which were really big successes. Now we're looking at Dickens more at the end of his career, so A Tale of Two Cities, 
1859. And by that point, he'd taken these kind of slightly darker, more elaborate and experimental turns with big novels like Bleak House, 1853. And after Two Cities, he'd only complete two more novels, Great Expectations, 61, and Our Mutual Friend, 65, before dying in 1870. Lots of Dickens' novels are, are quite implicitly set in the past, so usually like the 1820s or 30s, but... A Tale of Two Cities is very much a historical novel, isn't it, with capital H, capital N. And I thought now is the time, since we've already covered Dickens in our previous uh, episode, our Christmas Carol one, it might be instead worth talking about the historical novel as a genre. Yeah, what do you, when somebody says historical novel, what do they mean by that? And this, this was the period where this got going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because we've already covered works of fiction that were set in the past from earlier, haven't we, like Shakespeare's history plays or Mole Flanders? by Defoe. Yeah, but if you think about, like, when Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, which was set in the medieval period, you know, however many hundreds of years yeah. before Shakespeare was writing, or when he writes something like Julius Caesar, set in the ancient world, yeah. so like, you know, 1500 years before, they feel the same. Yeah, they act the, they, you, you can imagine Hamlet and Julius Caesar meeting each other from those two plays, and they, you know, they, they all talk like Elizabethans, don't they? Yeah, exactly. But a historical novel goes out of its way to try to evoke a sense of history yeah. and difference from, yeah, exactly. from the current day. Or, or at least kind of comparison. Yeah, it's, it is a 19th century genre, and I suppose there are a range of reasons for why it kind of arose at that time. The first big one, uh, the first big author of historical novels was um, Walter Scott. He wrote Waverley, 1814, about the 18th century Jacobite Wars, and Ivanhoe about the Middle Ages, which you think is very boring, don't you? Um, Ivanhoe is full of the most exciting content told in the most boring way. It's got Robin Hood in it, it's got jousts and kidnappings, and it's just everything you could ever want, told by a sentient plate of brown rice. So historical novels were really, really popular after Scott. Scott was so famous that his homeland was named after him. Other major figures include um, James Fenimore Cooper from the USA. He wrote Last of the Mohicans, so that's written in 1826, but set in the French and Indian Wars of the 1750s. Alexandre Dumas from France. He wrote The Three Musketeers, 1844, but it's set in the 17th century. And yeah, it may seem obvious today, but yeah, like you were saying, Abby, these sort of consciously, historically set works very like actively attempt to recreate a historical milieu so you know they all say like oh yeah i've just got this new thing called a potato <laughs> or oh pretty oh yeah by jupiter they all say stuff like that don't they because oh wow like potatoes were new back then you know they all do stuff like that and then later on you get more experimental work so like tolstoy's war and peace where the genre becomes a means of exploring you know the nature of history and the role mm-hmm. of individuals in history it becomes a kind of philosophical genre as it goes along rather than just a kind of you know cosplay fantasy i'm thinking about stuff we've done on this podcast yeah. so i think the most conscious example on our show is when we talked about an inspector calls so that is a, a play that is set in the 1910s but it was written in the 1940s right and it's the 1940s looking back on but then like we sort of compounded that because we talked a lot in our episode about the 1990s version mm. that was looking back on the 40s that was looking back on the 10s yeah. but we're recording it in 2022 looking back on the night you know yeah, so, yeah. so these things can sort of compound you know and yeah. it's, it's all about what is this period saying about another period that's the great thing about historical novels isn't it is they tell us as much about the period in which they were written as yes. they do about i was thinking also um things fall apart is a good kind of revisionist historical mm-hmm. novel isn't it you know saying looking at all these kind of colonial adventure novels from the 1890s mm-hmm. and saying let's look at it from 
maybe the other side. But also that was that's one that's sort of ambiguous because he goes out of his way to obscure when it's set. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, Which is part of the appeal. Yes. Yeah. But I think this is why people struggle to read A Tale of Two Cities, particularly. Like, of all of Dickens' work, I think this one is the one that people kind of wrestle with the most, and, and I certainly did. Because today we would sort of read Dickens when he writes normally and think, oh man, this guy talks in kind of an old-fashioned way. Because he does. He's writing, you know, 150 years ago. And also he's, like, incredibly mannered in his style, isn't he? Yes. But in this book particularly, he's on purpose taking an extra, you know, super-duper old-fashioned affected historical tone. So he's already trying to write, like, in a privy forsooth kind of way. So that, that already compounds the stuffiness of, you know, his original writing style. And, like, I really struggled with the first few pages of this book, like, really struggled. I thought we were going to have to cancel this book, from (laughs) pull it from the list, because I just, I I couldn't grapple with it. There are some bits where I'm just like, what was that? I felt like nothing. If you stick with it, once Dickens gets out of his own way and focuses on what he does well, which is, you know, the actual relationships and, and people having organic conversations with each other, then there are parts of this that get really good. Yeah. But Can't man, really those, right now, but. those first couple of chapters were hard going. Yeah. Okay, and I just want to end on one final note before we begin our recap, because I'm worried that Dickens scholars are going to listen to this and get really mad at us. We only have like an hour to cover this book, so we actually cut out the Jerry Cruncher character entirely. <gasps> I wasn't and, told. And the spies, Cly and Barsad. <gasps> we just don't have time. You can deal with it. It's going to be a few Abbey Crunches out there, aren't there? Because they're cross with you, and they're going to crunch you. That's rubbish, <laughs> sorry. Just know that there's a prominent character, secondary character, named Jerry Cruncher, who turns up a lot, and he's important thematically, but for the purposes of the plot, he doesn't do shit. When you're listening to this, just keep imagining that there's a character called Jerry Cruncher <laughs> just, like, sitting in the corner. <laughs> fill, fill him in wherever you want, and yeah. wherever you think it, it needs another character. Put old Jerry yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. He won't mind. <laughs> okay, let's, uh... <laughs> You won't mind. Okay, so we're starting this book, but you've already read her opening lines, the famous opening lines. But I noticed you seemed a little confused by what it meant. Could you maybe put it in a modern context? It it was the goat. Or should I say the goat time? The greatest of all time time. <laughs> it was a sus time. It was a woke age. It was a basic age. It was a thirsty <laughs> epoch. It was an epoch when you couldn't even. <laughs> it was the season of lit. It was the season of shade. That's a good one. It was the trill spring. It was the salty winter. We were turned. We were shook. We were all directly blessed. We were all directly cancelled. In short, everything was absolutely cray and extra and feels. <laughs> A bit like now, so that's that's my attempt at talking talk with the you know the young people. You know about them. Do you feel dirty? I feel dirty. Yeah, I feel a bit weird. Yeah, <laughs> this is funny because I I got a lot of this vocab from um, sort of websites for parents. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, some of it. I was like, even I know this is wrong or this is passe. So anyway, yeah, it's 1775. America has just declared its independence. France is this tyrannical kingdom with chaos on the horizon. 
and British society is just a sort of, you know, a bit of a chaotic thing. An arms race between highwaymen and hangmen is Dickens's general sense of the period. So we open on the story properly now that Dickens has had his big historical set the scene chapter, and it's this miserable, rainy, foggy winter night. And Dickens, he doesn't just paint us a scene, he uses a fucking roller brush. I completely zoned out in this bit. I like this bit. I'm sorry, I had nothing but clown music playing in my head until the plot started. I okay. was just staring into the middle I distance. I think this is my favorite bit in the whole novel. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, he, he really goes to town. It's a little purple prosy. So, a rider comes up on this struggling mail coach in England, and if you remember from our Mall Flanders episode, this was the period of highwaymen who were essentially, you know, road bandits. So everyone in the carriage is terrified of this rider coming up, and it's all very gothic, and the mail coach's guard has a gun trained on this guy, and it's, you know, it's all kinds of tense. Nothing to worry about, though. It's just a messenger with an emergency letter for one of the passengers, Mr. Jarvis Lorry, who's, he's a bank teller, he's on his way to Paris for business. And the message is super cryptic. Quote, wait at Dover for Mamselle. Mr. Lorry has an equally cryptic response. Say that my answer was recalled to life. <laughs> recalled to life? I mean, is this, is this a zombie story? Is it a vampire story? Is it a mummy story? Whatever it is, I am here for it. Yes, rise, bitch! <laughs> Let me just stop you there. So he's on the mail coach from London to Dover. Let's have a bit of Measuring Worth. Come on, everybody. Wait! Yeah, this is the Transport History Edition of Measuring Worth. So, if you want to go to London to Dover today, it takes an hour and a half to two hours on the train. If you want to go to London to Dover in the mid-19th century when Dickens was writing, it also takes about two hours. Progress. Um, <laughs> if you want to go to London to Dover and it's the mid-18th century, it takes 27 hours by coach. That's a long time, isn't it? That's a very long time, but I'm a little perturbed. Measuring Worth has four parts, famously. What would I do? I don't know, Roman Daniel. times or something. Just get your thumb out, man. <laughs> you, have, you have one yeah, job. Yeah, maybe hitchhiking. That could be the... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're in Dover. While Laurie waits for Mademoiselle, we get a bit of background on him. Hooray. So he's this kind of fusty old bank clerk. We also get some background on Telson's Bank, his employers. So it's this venerable old establishment with branches in London and Paris. The, the two, two cities? cities? Yeah. Mademoiselle arrives, it's Miss Lucy Manette. She's one of your kind of classic Dickensian golden-haired innocents, isn't she? I mean, she? She's, she's young, she's hot, she's blonde, she's blue-eyed. She has got, Dickens tells us, a fabulous forehead. She's basically my twin. Right. So we learn from their discussion that Lucy believes herself to be an orphan, she's from France, and she was taken into the care of Telson's bank. I'm sorry, her, her stepmom is a bank? Yeah. So now bombshell dropped, it transpires that her dad, a client of the bank, is not dead. <gasps> Tiny Tim, who did not die, in fact he's been in prison and now he's been released and found alive in Paris and the pair, you know, they're in Dover to go and retrieve him. So Lucy, she's trying to process, you know, she's grown up as an orphan, as this ward of a bank, which is a super weird situation. She's trying to process that her dad is not dead after all, but he's just actually been doing a few nickels in the big house. Some teams. Then Mr. Laurie drops a second bombshell. Not only is your dad not actually dead, he's also gone a little bit mad when he's been locked up in the Bastille. 
Lucy faints at this because she's, you know, she's one of those chicks who faints a lot. Mm. And all of a sudden, a giant red woman bursts through the door wearing, quote, a hat like a great Stilton cheese. Nice. I mean, she busts into this novel like she's the goddamn Kool-Aid man coming through a concrete wall. And she fist slams Mr. Laurie into the far wall. And you might think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. Mm -hmm. She is is one folding chair away from being a pro wrestler. Turns out, this is Lucy's governess and lady companion, Miss Pross. And she is here for blood. But it's all a misunderstanding. Lucy's fine. She's just so upset about poor Papa, who's gone mad. Hooray. Did they have folding chairs in the 1770s? In the, yeah, in the early days of WWE. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, I was thinking like a milking stool or something. Cut to Paris. This is one of the most famous scenes in the book. So we're in the streets and it's just full of poor, starving wretches. And a barrel of wine falls off a wagon and smashes in the streets. The people are so hungry that they go into a bit of a frenzy and they drink wine out of little puddles in the street and they sort of lap up the wine with the mud until every last drop is drunk. And some joker says, Hey, that looks like blood. So a little foreshadowing yeah, horn there. I think so. A lot of these people also work at the local mill, which is such hard physical labor that Dickens keeps making the comparison that the mill not only grinds flour, but it grinds the workers into premature old age, and it's very, like, on the nose. Mm. The children had ancient faces and grave voices, and upon them and upon the grown faces and plowed into every furrow of age was the sign hunger. It was prevalent everywhere. Hunger was pushed out of the tall houses in the wretched clothing that hung upon poles and lines. Hunger was patched into them with straw and rag and wood and paper. Hunger stared down from the smokeless chimneys and started up from the filthy streets that had no offal among its refuse of anything to eat. Hunger was the inscription on the baker's shelves. Okay, so like on and on and on, right? Yeah. It's so mannered, isn't it, the way this book it's, is written? Yeah. Well, but I was thinking that's actually a good way to get a little literary term in there. Go on, yeah, hit me. So uh, that is called anaphora when you start a sentence or a line with the same word and you use it over and over again. And this is to hammer home sort of emphasis and to show the prevalence of the thing. So here, obviously, hunger is coming first and it's relentless. And anaphora is designed to provoke an emotional response in the reader. In terms of this book, this this section really sets up the case for like why the French Revolution happened and to give us sympathy for the poor, no matter what happens in the rest of the book. Yeah. So I think he really hammers it home here. We're introduced to the wine shop's proprietor. He calls himself Monsieur Defarge. He has such hunger, he could fall in the apples at any minute. Right, so yeah, why was I on about falling in the apples? So, for some reason, I don't know why Dickens does that. He wants to try and like show that the French are not like the same as the English by kind of literally translating a lot of French phrases into English. So like instead of saying his name is Monsieur Defarge, it's like he calls himself Monsieur Defarge. Mm-hmm. Because... Je m'appelle, I call yeah, myself. Yeah. Well, explain the fall in the apples thing. What's what is that in French? Uh, tomber à la pomme. So it's and that, faint. Okay, so in French, tomber à la pomme means to faint, but it literally translates as I'm going to fall in the. Or is apples. it tomber dans la pomme? I can't remember now. <laughs> tomber dans les pommes. I think it might be that. But anyway, yeah, it means literally to fall in the apples, but idiomatically, it's 
means to, to faint. Okay, and so Dickens is like giving us the hyper anglicized version to show. Yeah. I know French saying. Also, like, oh, they're not like us, but you know, you don't actually have to read French to understand that. You okay. Know, I think that's what he's doing. It's just ridiculous, anyway. I don't like it. Uh, it makes them all sound like kind of weird, sort of slightly broken robots, doesn't it? <laughs> but then that's, that's France, isn't it? <laughs> anyway. The times are bad. If only we could have a blow of state, he thinks, and get rid of the king. But, you know, anyway, Defarge, you know, can't bother about things like that because he has a U-turn up, which brackets rendezvous, with an Englishman. Ah, and here he is. It's Mr. Laurie of Telson's Bank with Miss Manette. I like that they're having a breakfast Pinot Noir before going to get her dad. That's, just, that's, that's the, you know, the savoir vivre, isn't it? You know? <laughs> when in Rome. Yeah, exactly. It turns out that Lucy's father, Dr. Manette, has been living upstairs in Defarge's garret since being released from the Bastille. Yeah, the Bastille, the famous prison. He's rather wizened. He doesn't even seem to know who he is, and he's working as a sort of cobbler, shoemaker type thing. I don't know if there's a difference there. All he can say is his old address, 105 North Tower. In the Bastille. We're also introduced into in this part to one of the more famous characters in the book, Madame Defarge, Defarge's sinister wife. And she just sits in a corner, knitting incessantly and keeping a beady eye on everything. And Monsieur and Madame Defarge clearly have like a lot more going on. They're not just these humble wine shop owners. All the all the sort of men who come into the wine shop kind of wink at Monsieur mm. Defarge, and they all call each other Jacques in this oh, sort yeah, of like yeah. code name thing. And also in honor of the Jacquerie, you know, the the peasant revolts. Something shady is afoot. But never mind. Lucy and Doctor Manette have their big reunion scene, you know, father and daughter reunited, and it's just nauseating and saccharine, and I hate every second of it. He's the one who Mr. Laurie is quote-unquote recalling to life. I don't know why we need all this stupid cloak and dagger bullshit. It's really silly. So Mr. Laurie and Lucy decide to take poor, you know, crazy Dr. Manette back to London and give him a new start in life after like 20 years in the Bastille. So, five years later, we are in London. And Mr. Laurie, Lucy, and Dr. Manette are in court as witnesses to a treason case, so it's a strong opening on the UK. They're in Newgate Prison, aren't they? I don't remember. No, they're in the Old Bailey. It's just a, it was a little Mole Flanders joke for people who might remember that Abby confused Newgate Prison and the Old Bailey repeatedly. Well, clearly you have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I need to... How long have you been sitting on that one? You just... Well, I told you that in the first place. It'll, it'll come up again. It'll come <laughs> yeah, up again. Yeah, yeah. Here, my time to shine. I'm like the French peasants. I'm very resentful. <laughs> I need to just end this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> free myself of the shackles of my own device. Yeah. <laughs> right, so back in the day when they, you know, they went to the wine shop, they picked up the dad, they made the crossing from France to England to get Dr. Manette the away from the Bastille. And on the boat, there was this hot young French guy named Charles Darnay. And look, okay, this this pains me because Charles Darnay is a super himbo, mm. but he's so dull and it makes me really sad yeah. to give him the you, you, you boring himbos? the beloved sound effect. Boringify the sound effect 10%. <laughs> So Charles Darnay chatted up Lucy on the boat. Long story short, England and France were at war at the colonies, as they always were in the 18th century. And Charles Darnay, who has business in both England and France and travels back and forth a lot, is under suspicion by the English government of being a spy, potentially. So the punishment for being found guilty of treason at the time is being drawn and quartered, which Mm. is a pretty grisly death. 
and everyone in court has sympathy for Darnay, no matter what the evidence, because he is simply too hot for capital punishment. Lucy gives testimony, you know, she's called to the stand, and she's so upset that she might accidentally incriminate Darnay that she faints, and the whole court is in awe of her beauty and her delicacy. I really, really hate the way Dickens writes Lucy. Yeah. As my dad would say, this really chaps my ass. I think that's something we can all agree with. You weren't turned on by her no. little her delicacy and her gentle blushings. And no, I wasn't. No. I want to kick her right in the cooter. I'm sorry. Yeah. I want to interrupt because Dickens talks loads about the bloody code, doesn't he? Okay. In the 18th century, they just you could get hung for anything, couldn't you, back then? You could get hung for, like, stealing. Mm-hmm. A, I stole a loaf of bread. <laughs> so, you know, I think yeah. there's meant to be a parallel between the cruelty of English society and the cruelty of French society and the revolution, but con- compare and contrast essay. That's what this whole book is, isn't it? It's like a GCSE essay. Compare and contrast <laughs> France and England. So anyway, th- guys, this this whole section is really long. It's this really long court case. It, it grinds the plot to a kind of a halt, but ready? Because the plot's about to turn back up again. You know, th- things are not looking good for Charles Darnay, but the case turns when one of Darnay's lawyers, a man named Sidney Carton, stands up and he asks one of the witnesses, hey, can you tell the difference between me and my client, Darnay? As luck would have it, Sidney Carton, the lawyer, he's kind of a crusty bitch, but he looks exactly like Darnay. He is Darnay's incel doppelganger. <laughs> so the witness, who had previously had been like, I think I saw Darnay doing spy shit. He takes one look at, you know, double take at Sidney Carton, he goes, Oh, cool, blimey, you two is exactly the same. Can you just be like, well, yeah, I can tell the difference. That's what I would do. <laughs> you Kill just, that man! You just lie, yeah, you perjure just, yourself. Well, I feel like he's got a wig on and he hasn't. <laughs> Everywhere wigs back then. Carry on. So It's a rubbish case is what I'm saying. This is a rubbish case because, first of all, the witness and the jury are just noticing this now. Mm, yeah, Cart- I keep thinking that. Carton's yeah. been working this whole case, but this is the first time it's twigged. Like, oh, oh you yeah, guys are yeah, identical. Yeah. So Darnay gets acquitted because if two people look kind of alike, neither one of them can ever be guilty of a crime, I guess. And Darnay just gets all the fucking breaks in this book, let me tell you. He's just sort of... He's jammy. He's a Chad. He's God's own quarterback. He's a Chad. He's a Mormon Chad. Yeah. He's that sort of vibe. (laughs) Whereas Carton is a Mormon... uh, What's the other one? What are the non-Chads called? Beta Cooks. I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't... I don't don't hang around those sorts of circles. I'm exclusively in Chad circles. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe Sigma, actually. If you say you're a Sigma, you can't be a Sigma. That's the rule, isn't it? Are you... You're trying to loophole your own masculinity? I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, this feels like you know how theater kids have all of those bizarre rituals for if you say Macbeth in oh, the yeah, theater yeah. and then you have to like spit three times and run around outside counterclockwise or whatever. I feel like you are doing that with your gender and sexuality right now. All right. You're just confusing it enough until you believe the curse is lifted. Who's the queer icon now? <gasps> Don't you dare steal that from me. I will kill you. No, I will same. put you in the ground, motherfucker. I will hunt you down like okay. a dog. God. We've, <laughs> Pretty we've, aggressive. Oh my god, I'm the Chad. Yeah. We've gotten off track. Let's get back to the plot, please. So, after the trial, Lucy, she seems a little too pleased that Darnay will be okay, doesn't she? She's very pleased. I wonder why. Anyway, Darnay and Carton, the two lookalikes, they go for a sort of celebratory meal slash piss up, although it's primarily Carton, you know, who does the drinking. He's drinking for two, isn't he? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think this is one of Dickens' best scenes in the book, actually, and it's one that nobody ever thinks about, but 
he's dropped by this point all of his fake historical novel shit, and he's doing the thing that he's actually good at which is character building and interaction so yeah we've got Dane. he's this squeaky clean french tutor carton he's weird isn't he? he's brooding and complex mm, tell me more yeah say it slow daniel well he's a brilliant lawyer but he's also put upon by his pompous business partner, Striver. Striver takes all the credit. There's this whole bit later on, isn't there, about how Carton's like a jackal, Striver's the lion who gets... All the glory. Gets yeah. the glory. And let's not forget, Carton's a drunk. He's a he's depressive. He's a drunk. Yeah. The prefab I have here is, Sidney Carton's birthstone is rock bottom. Hey, he's not really a complex character. I don't know, you're still selling him. I don't care if he's completely hollow inside as his name would belie. You were, well, yeah. You wouldn't appreciate this, but I think he's a bit like Jess in Gilmore Girls. I don't know who that is, no, and well, I refuse to learn. Well, just this kind of, you know, mm, I've got an attitude, I'm a bad boy, but there's actually just nothing there. So, Carton resents the wholesome doppelganger that is Darnie. I think there's this implication that both of them fancy Lucy as well, isn't there? Okay. Just, yeah, I don't care. I just I don't care about these two. Two shallow people, one who... One who knows he's shallow and one who doesn't. <laughs> which one is which? Yeah, well, yes. There's a little love triangle brewing. I know it's a male fantasy to have a three-way with twins, but Lucy is the one that's very close to realizing that. She yeah. could get that action. She could, Feminist hero. She could fulfill Austin Powers' checklist from Goldmember. Oh, yeah. Something a bit highbrow for the listeners there, thank you. I think just two or three times Per season, we need to work Austin Powers in. It was very uh, formative to my development. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. It, it came was, out. It just... was big. So, cut back to Dr. Manette. He's sort of recovered from his bout of insanity, and he is now a practicing physician again. But he's still mentally very fragile, and he still holds on to his shoemaking kit. He takes it to bed with him, doesn't he? He, like, cuddles it. Did I miss that, or does he actually? No, does he's he... always, like, he's kissing his shoe and going, like, no tongue and things like that. <laughs> That's a shoe joke. It's a bit of shoe banter there. And we're gonna... You, you kind of missed this. You missed a little <gasps> bit of a queer reading here. No. Miss Pross, Lucy's heroine of a governess, she's all bent out of shape because when Lucy fainted in court that day, she got kind of famous after the trial for being, oh, the hot chick who fainted. And now Miss Pross says hundreds of suitors keep dropping by the house to, quote, take Ladybird's affections away from me. And Mr. Laurie is like, yeah, Miss Pross is real jealous. Mm. So there's a big old queer reading. And you you didn't pick up on that, did you? I wanted to leave that for you. Did you? No, I just didn't care about Miss Pross. How could you not care about something this gay? Well, a giant red I was more interested in that guy being in bed with a shoe. <laughs> That's where I get my kicks. <laughs> <laughs> you have those locked and loaded. Do you have Do you have a list of shoe-related nope, things? No, it's just... It's just, it's just, it's just I've discovered this. It's about myself. <laughs> You're a true vaudevillian, Daniel. I'm a showman. Um, <laughs> so. You're also distracting from my queer readings. Carry, which, carry on, yeah. It's not my fault my queer readings are so good. It's like a Geiger counter that lives inside me. Mm. So that night, Darnay shows up at the Manette's house, and jealous Miss Pross starts a jangling and a twitching at his appearance, and she says, oh, I just have to go inside, because she, quote, has a fit of the jerks. Oh. <laughs> Basically, a jerk has shown up, mm. and she's having a fit. Fit jerk. Has he is up. a fit jerk yeah. who shows up. Sydney Carton also shows up, and she gets another fit of the jerks. I thought I'd just let you in. Well, different guy. Oh, yeah. 
So I don't know about the supposedly hundreds of guys that are coming to court Lucy, like she had said, but really it is these two dudes who hang around an awful lot. Darnay comes mooning after Lucy and being really sweet, while Sidney Carton broods in a corner. and He's nagging her quietly. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Contrary to how he's trying to act, Carton is not impervious to Lucy. I would go so far as to say that he is super pervious. <laughs> And then a storm breaks out and they all sit and listen to the footsteps of the sort of urban crowd outside the door running to find shelter. And this is a big metaphor in the book. Lucy sort of fancifully wonders if these are the ghosts of all the footsteps of everyone that would ever come into their lives. Manic pixie dream girl that she is. Mm. And Sidney Carton says a lot more grimly, he wonders if this is, you know, a sort of portent of a large crowd that might impact their lives before long. Uh, the mob of the future. Yeah, foreshadowing please. Yeah. Can we have a little, because uh, there's a bit where it says those were drinking days and men drank very hard about Carton. Mm-hmm. Can somebody come up with a measuring worth for um, units consumed between 1780, 1860 and now? So he drinks a pint of wine here. That's his last tipple of that's the a, night. That's, that's, his, that's, that's his, his winding down yeah, drink. That's his, what do you call it, like his, uh, his, his nightcap. So, we're back in Paris. We're in the suite of some kind of powerful unnamed Aristo. He likes hot chocolate, doesn't he? He has four servants solely devoted to its preparation. And the narrator kind of has this... Typically, Dickensian way has this very elaborate way of saying that if he only had three servants attending the process, he would have dishonored his family, and if only two servants, he probably would have died. You know, this guy needs four servants to make his chocolate. It wouldn't make, wouldn't make sense to have any less. That's the point, isn't it? I wish we saw more of this guy, to be honest. Yeah. I, wa- I want to see his house. I bet he has some big old Liberace-ass pool. Yeah. Like, I, I was really fascinated by this character, but we don't see him for very long, but it's supposed to be indicative of the excesses of the aristocracy in France. Dickens tries to um, avoid... He never actually names any major historical figures, does no, he? No, yeah, no. He doesn't even name the, the king. Anyway, so this guy has tons of hangers-on and cronies, and these are all just sort of poshos who benefit from this guy's uh, patronage. One of these acolytes, however, has fallen out of favour with this grandee. That's the the, the Marquis de Saint-Evrimond. And this Marquis is like, screw this guy, I'm going home. He gets in his big carriage and it zooms out of Paris with, with little regard for the local street rabble. I mean, the vibes in this are like rich dude about to get a DUI in a giant Hummer. Um, so anyway, soon enough, this carriage hits a child. Uh, the locals, including one, Monsieur Defarge... Are, <gasps> I've heard of him! Yes, yeah. They're royally pissed off. Or should that be republicanly pissed off? <laughs> oh, Daniel, you're so droll! That's a prefab. Um, <laughs> the Marquis is also cross. He's like, it's extraordinary to me that you people cannot take care of yourselves and your children. One or the other of you is ever in the way. How do I know what injury you've done to me horses? Yeah, suck it, cracker bones. Yeah, you let your kid's head left a dent in my car. <laughs> Look, I'm not here to finger point Daniel. Who's to say who's to blame in this situation? He tosses the child's father a coin. Monsieur Defarge has to hold back the dead kid's father from beating the Marquis's ass. And Defarge says, quote, Look, we're so miserable and hungry, it was better for the child to have died in a moment without pain than to have continued to suffer for another hour. No, thanks. So the Marquis overhears this and he's like, Oh, I like the cut of your jib, philosopher. Have a coin yourself. Don't spend it all in one place, sugar tits. But before the Marquis can drive off, that coin that he gave Defarge is chucked back through his carriage window, and that mortally offends the Marquis, who is very rare in his generosity. So he looks out the window to see where Defarge is gone so he can have him punished, but he's vanished. 
In his place is a dark woman who gives the Marquis the stink eye while knitting incessantly. Yeah, so Dickens doesn't like the Ancien Regime, does he? Even if later on we'll see, he doesn't really like the revolutionaries either. He's a moderate. So the Marquis, all pissed off now, he drives to his country estate and he has some more interactions where he's really horrible to the grieving, suffering poors. So the Marquis really does not seem to sense that there is national trouble a-brewing. And the prefab I have here is, you know, for a man who probably has 400 rooms in his mansion, he should maybe learn to read one of them. Very good. So the Marquis, he's back in his pad, he's annoyed. He asks one of his servants if a Monsieur Charles has arrived yet. We only know of one other man named Charles in this novel. Darnay. The hot, dull class president. The Josh Hartnett of Ashton Kutcher's. (laughs) Does that joke make sense? No, but I liked it. But but what could Darnay want with a horrible aristocrat like this? Sure enough, Charles Darnay shows up, and it turns out that he is the Marquis's estranged nephew. Darnay's dead dad was the Marquis's twin brother. Can we pause here and say what is up with twins and doubles in this? I mean, there's loads of like very conspicuous parallelisms, mm. like even in motifs and stuff, mm. aren't there? I don't know. Well, we'll talk about this in the analysis. We're not so different, you and I. It's a bit <laughs> like that, isn't it, France and England? So Darnay and his evil uncle have a tense, if very lavish, dinner because these two have baggage. Add in a Culkin making a masturbation joke, and this would be a scene straight out of succession. Yeah. Long story short, Darnay is a secret French aristocrat who fancies himself a bit of a man of the people. The prefab I have here is, he's the Michael Caine of Bob Hoskins. <laughs> so he's given up all of his titles and wealth and moved to England to teach a bunch of ungrateful university students. Me too. Yeah. Darnie says he doesn't want to be an aristocrat and that the Uncle Marquis best attend to his spiritual condition and right some wrongs real quick, because things are about to get ugly. The Marquis says, quote, My friend... I will die perpetuating the system under which I have lived. You sure will, f***o. So Darnay gets very like, you're not my real dad, I'm going back to England, and he leaves. The next morning, we pan to the Marquis in bed with a knife driven through his chest with a note that says, quote, drive him fast to his tomb from Jacques. <laughs> with Jacques, of course, being the shady name that Monsieur Defarge and all of his sketchy buddies used to call each other in the wine shop when it seemed like they were up to some shit. I mean, obviously, no other dude in France could be named Jacques. No, yes. So, but yeah, the dead hit-and-run kid has been avenged. Hooray. Hooray! So now we go back to England. Yeah, more time passes. Darnay's career as a French tutor is going well. Très bien. <laughs> also, Darnay's love for Lucy Manet is as strong as ever. Barf. The doctor gives Darnay his blessing, but then Darnay tries to tell the doctor about his true origins. And the doctor's like, no, 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 don't tell me anything about your past until the wedding. Uh, yeah, I too reason. prefer to get all of my information only after I've made huge yes, life-changing yes. decisions. Yeah, and then so Dr. Manet, he clearly knows that He's just given his blessing to somebody who doesn't want to know the info. Something's probably up. Uh, I'm going to go hammer my shoes because I'm having one of my spells and need to cobble the crazy away. I'm having a fit of the cobbles. <laughs> yes. So, Darnay makes the move sort of off camera, doesn't he? But Lucy's pleased about it. Meanwhile, finally, Carton, he confesses his feelings for Lucy. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know it's a forlorn hope and everything. <laughs> I'm a drunk. 
I'm a depressive, I'm a guy who looks like he should be hanging out around the gas station dumpsters, but could you ever love a humble dirtbag like me? He's like, I'm quite undeserving. Oh, you want to do the real quote. You don't want to do my paraphrase. <laughs> yeah, well, I feel like I should read it. I've had the weakness and still have the weakness to wish you to know with what a sudden mastery you kindled me. Heap of ashes that I am into fire. He's such a miserable wretch, isn't he? So, you've given my life meaning. Even if we can't be together, I owe you everything for rekindling my spirit. And I will make any sacrifice for you. For sure. Yes. So, I don't really get what Kant's problem is. Like, what's wrong with that guy? Well... I don't know about Curtin's problem, but I figured out what your problem is. Mm. I think you see a lot of yourself in Curtin, and as such, you detest him. I do. <laughs> oh, yeah, I do feel a bit like Curtin, actually. <laughs> but it's just a bit. Aside from that, though, it's just a bit where Dickens is like, oh, he's got these low companions and low habits uh, that he scorns but yields to. And I wondered if. Like you? Yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. I think he's a man with clinical depression. I think he's somebody who's very smart, doesn't really have a lot of friends and family, and he's just super, super depressed. All right. It's all just a chemical imbalance. Yeah. Okay, great. Boring. Can I ask how we feel about Lucy's rejection of Sidney Carton? Because on the one hand, she does very narrowly avoid that that oh-so-seductive, but-I-can-fix-him thing. Because mm. I'm here going, oh, man, I would pick Carton way over <laughs> yeah. Darnay. But on the other hand, he is the only complex, interesting character in the book. I mean, well, is he? Darnay's a fucking dial tone, comparatively. Like, who would you boink? Um, I feel like Darnay would probably be a better cook. Because he's French. That is not the question I asked. <laughs> cook me a nice meal first, and then we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we cut back to Paris. Monsieur Defarge is meeting with his coterie of spies and collaborators, all codenamed Jacques, and they're talking about the secret register they've been keeping for all the people they want to assassinate once shit starts to properly go down. Now, obviously, the Marquise was one, and good job, everybody, on knife-murdering his candy ass. But the list grows. Cue de bonbon. Candy ass. You're like if Duolingo had a one-man show. <laughs> so... Everyone is sort of worrying, like, oh, what if the officials find our secret assassination list and it gets us into trouble? But Monsieur Defarge is like, don't worry, guys. It's all written in code, and in no place anyone would think to look for it. Our murder list is written in the pattern of Madame Defarge's knitting. <clears throat> Quote, knitted in her own stitches and her own symbols, it will always be as plain to her as the sun. Confide in Madame Defarge. It would be easier for the weakest poltroon that lives to erase himself from existence than to erase one letter of his name or crimes from the knitted register of Madame Defarge. So every time she's glowering at somebody and knitting, you know their name is getting added to Whoa. the list. So now we get into some proper spy shit. I'm going to skip over a lot of this because it's a lot of like minor characters and whispers and all that crap. But the long story short is that Monsieur and Madame Defarge, if you remember, they took care of Dr. Manette after he escaped the Bastille. They like him. He's a sort of hero for being in prison. They like his daughter, Lucy. But then they find out little Lucy, she's about to get married. Oh, good to the nephew of that horrible Marquis they just killed. Ooh. I know, juicy scuttlebutt yeah. from Charing yeah. Cross. Yeah. So Madame Defarge is like, hmm, we should really put Darnay's name on the scarf. And Monsieur Defarge is like, well, now, honey, calm down. I, I really like Dr. Manette and Lucy Manette. 
You know, they were willing to accept him into their family. Maybe Charles isn't all that bad. We should give him a pass. No. Yeah, she's like, she's like, listen, fucko, we are bound by scarf law now. I don't make the rules. The, the best we can do is hope that Darnay never comes back to France. <laughs> the law of the scarf. So, we're back in London. You remember it. Uh, we have the Darnay Manette wedding. Dr. Manette is already feeling a bit emotional because it's his daughter's, you know, big day. But now Darnay tells him about his true origins. He doesn't tell his fucking wife-to-be ever. No, that wouldn't be appropriate, would it? It's... It's men's business. Um, so the wedding comes off fine in that way that they do. But somehow Charles's links to the Saint Evremond family has spooked Dr. Manette Summon Fierce. Ooh, there's clearly some connection we're going to find out yeah, about. No doubt, in a very elaborate way. I just want to say that I really hate Darnay and I would sell his secret to TMZ so fast it would make your head spin. I don't know what that is. Anyway, it's a little known fact, right? But whenever a Dickensian dad who has spent some time in prison, is subject to any emotional stress, he reverts to his imprisoned <laughs> self. That's just a rule of Dickensian dads. Is there another one that does that? William Dorrit and Little Dorrit. Oh, he he okay. also has a kind of nervous breakdown and starts thinking he's in prison. So, anyway, Dr. Manette, he enters the kind of fugue state and starts making shoes again, doesn't he? Oh no, he's, he's back on the old shoes. He's, he's, he's relapsed <laughs> back into the shoes. Miss Pross and Mr. Laurie, they keep this all secret from Lucy. Late that night, Laurie and Pross smash up Manette's shoemaking kit. And then they bury it in the back garden like it's a dead goldfish you're hoping your seven-year-old doesn't notice is gone. And he doesn't! What happened to my shoemaking kit? Went to a farm. <laughs> <laughs> so, the happy couple come back from their honeymoon, Carton turns up and makes peace with Darnay. Hooray. Yeah, Lucy basically makes Darnay promise to be kind to Sidney Carton, although she doesn't say why. So Darnay agrees, oh sure, honey, I'll, I'll always be kindly to him. And the two of them kiss and they say lots of dumb shit like, my love, my life, my turtle dove, my golden poppet, my little French croissant, my baby pumpkin, all just this nonsense and just puke and barf. My little Tetra Pak. That's what you'd say to Sidney Carton. What's Tetra Pak? It's a brand of Carton. How do you know brands of Carton? I thought everybody you know, knew Tetra Pak. You know, like, how some people are train spotters. Or like, <laughs> yeah, I'm a Carton guy. You're, you, yeah, you, I'm a Carton guy, sure. <laughs> I got a Carton guy. <laughs> so, time passes, and Lucy hears the echoes of those footsteps again in the very heavy-handed metaphor alert. Heavy-footed. Cute. She and Darnay have a little girl who is really originally named Little Lucy. Because, frankly, there is so little personality among the three of these people that two are forced to share a name. I just don't know how these two completely sexless idiots managed to have a kid. I guess they just rubbed their Barbie and Ken swimsuit parts together until Little Lucy materialized under a nearby cabbage patch. Sydney Carton, you know, even after all this time, still stops by a few times a year to shoot the breeze. And it's around little Lucy's sixth birthday that they start hearing news from France. Mr. Laurie turns up and he says something is spooking many of the rich bank account holders in France who are all liquidating their property and putting it in Telson's bank so it can be safely deposited in England. In short, revolution is a brewing. So, we cut to the Faubourg de Saint-Antoine, where Defarge lives. And Dickens personifies this as a kind of single being, doesn't he? It's a good bit. A tremendous roar arose from the throat of Saint-Antoine. Naturally, Monsieur and Madame Defarge and their various chums are at the heart of the mob, aren't they? And it's Monsieur Defarge himself who suggests 
why don't we storm the Bastille? So let's read a few of these quotes because it is good. So, cannon, muskets, fire and smoke, but still the deep ditch, the single drawbridge, the massive stone walls and the eight great towers. Slight displacements of the raging sea, so that's the mob, made by the falling wounded, flashing weapons, blazing torches, smoking wagon loads of wet straw, shrieks, volleys, boom, smash and rattle, and the furious sounding of the living sea, but still the deep ditch, and the single drawbridge, and the massive stone walls, and the eight great towers, and still defarge of the wine shop at his gun, grown doubly hot by the service of four fierce hours. That's a, that is actually a great bit. Like, yeah. the action has shown up in this. Also, Madame Defarge, terrifying in this. She starts wielding an axe, a pistol, and a, quote, cruel knife, which she uses to cut off a prison officer's head. She has an axe, and she's like, no, I want the knife. Just three weapons as well. Yeah. And also presumably some knitting needles. Yeah. How's she doing that, then? She's like an orangutan. Well, I mean, I th- uh, you got the knife between your teeth, yeah. you got an axe in one hand, the gun in the other. Also, the gun only has one shot. I you imagine she has some kind of like, some special pistol, like one-man band pistol rack that she can kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so, anyway. What, like a, like Dick Van Dyke like and Dick Mary Poppins? Yeah, I'm imagining a sort of like a, a really violent Dick Van Dyke, if you will. So, anyway. The Bastille is surrounded, it's not broken, but it surrenders. And the mob completely raid the place. They're looking to rescue prisoners and find evidence of the cruelty of the Ancien Regime. Defarge, he makes a beeline for 105 North Tower. Do you remember that? It's the cell of his old friend, Dr. Manette. What's Defarge up to going to Dr. Manette's old cell? Probably nothing. Don't worry about it. Revolution is afoot. And the Defarges are fully paid up, sans culottes. They've that means they don't wear trousers. Yeah. Just running around with a bare arses. Oh, Porky Pig in it. I like that. <laughs> so Madame Defarge, she she sort of becomes a leader in this. She and the other women of the neighborhood are sort of really radical. They're all knitting really aggressively, adding tons of names. One of the local women has renamed herself the Vengeance. I love that. That's pretty baller. Yeah, I like that, yeah. yeah so it's it's this uh, it's a very cool like women's club, giving us wine mom energy. They, mm. they probably all have tote bags that say "Live, Laugh, Louvre." Yeah, um, very good. But instead of heading, you should to, work for the Louvre, shouldn't you? That I, should be a thing that have. There is there is no way that that is original to me. I'm sure somebody has gotten there first. All right. I, I can well, almost guarantee time I've you. Heard it. I was just, I was like, I don't even want to Google that because if that is original, I have no power to make Louvre merchandise. City of Louvre. And it just keeps giving and giving, doesn't it? <laughs> Very good. So, revolution is spreading across the country, including all the way out to the estate of Darnay's asshole, Marquis Uncle. So, the irate locals, they storm out there, they burn his castle to the ground. There's an estate manager out there named Monsieur Gabelle who's still trying to keep the place up in the wake of the Marquis's death, you know, waiting for the day Darnay comes to reclaim his rightful inheritance, and he's like, I just really love to clean the drainage and mow the lawns, but the revolutionaries are not having it. They're like, you're a class traitor. Come with us, friend. We got a prison cell with your name on it. Dickens zooms over the early years of the revolution to 1792, the start of the New Republic. And things are getting so bad that even Telson's bank think they might have to shut down their Paris branch. Oh no. The now quite aged Mr. Laurie, he's being sent to mine the Paris branch during the ongoing chaos. I think that's that's like a sort of like, you know, when they try and force somebody into retirement by getting shit. <laughs> so anyway, Darnay's like, Oh, rather you than me, mate. <laughs> now, let me just open this letter from my family's faithful old retainer, Monsieur Gabelle. I wonder how he's doing. 
oh no, he's in trouble with the revolution, he's been put in prison. Darnay's like, well, I might as well go to France too now to rescue Gabel, but I won't tell anyone because I'm such a bloody good bloke. I mean, but in fairness, how would you sell that to your wife? I'm actually an aristocrat. You're a marchioness this whole time, a marquise. Yeah. He'd have to sell that like Oprah. We're all going to Père Lachaise! Uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. Finally, we're on to part three of the novel, which is the the main bit. This is why you're here. Yeah. Like, you're here, you know. You're really here for the There's last... a lot of crap in <laughs> the first You're here for the last two, two pages, yeah. like, really. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Darnay, he's crossing France. It's, it's kind of shit, you know, like it always was, you know? Because revolutions don't change things. Remember that moderate stuff does. Uh, so, although everybody in France is like corrupt and drunk and everything, they're also very, very vigilant when it comes to national security. Can you imagine how awful that is? The drunks who are hyper vigilant. Yeah. I can't believe there's two of you. <laughs> <laughs> or Carton and Darnay. There's four, four of you. you. <laughs> We're in France. Darnay is immediately arrested, like comedy levels of immediately. You know, as he's being sort of hustled off to prison, people keep talking about, quote, that sharp female newly born, la guillotine. And Darnay's like, derp -a -derp -a -derp, what's that? <laughs> context clues, asshole. Con how are you going to context... What do you mean? Context clues. If somebody goes around whispering about that sharp female, I'd be like, oh, there's something killing us. Or like, and everyone's being rounded up and arrested. I'm like, this ain't good. Okay. Come on. I'd be worried, but I just think if I'd never heard of the guillotine and somebody said the guillotine, I wouldn't know what it was. But if somebody's winking and nudging you, going that sharp female, you got a date with the guillotine. guillotine. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I think it, I might think it was like a torture thing, like what? the strapado. Okay, well, your tomato, tomato friend. Strapado, strapado. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> so meanwhile, Mr. Lorry, who you know, just. Two days before retirement, he's <laughs> trying to wrap up his banking business and get the hell out of Dodge. And he just about chokes when he sees Lucy and Dr. Manette turn up in Paris, the absolute last place they should be. So they got Darnay's note, and they followed him immediately, you know, before he could get hurt, but Laurie's like, oops, too late, he's in prison, and you guys should, like, get out of here before the same thing happens to you. Dr. Manette, though... He doesn't go to pieces and start cobbling like he normally does. No, no, he gets a little bit of his old pizzazz back. He basically puts on some sunglasses and takes a big drag on his ciggy, and he's like, Laurie, baby, I'm a 20-year veteran of the Bastille. I'm a hero in these parts. Mm. Watch daddy work. And then he does, like, a sick skateboard ollie over Robespierre's head, and Robespierre's like, fantastic. Yeah. We are very pro-Ollies in the cult of the supreme being. <laughs> but while Dr. Manette is saying all of this, Dickens sort of cuts away to this basically like a blood orgy happening outside the bank where a crowd is grinding up the dead bodies in this giant grindstone. And it's kind of like how they discussed earlier how the millstone chews up all the youth in the bodies of its workers and it makes them old before their time. And here they're like, yeah, now now we're going to grind up somebody else. Because it's the September massacres, isn't it? Yeah. When they killed all of, summarily executed a bunch of prisoners. Yeah. And there's a bit that I didn't really understand at the blood orgy, I say for the second time this week. Um, <laughs> but Dickens writes that the men operating the grindstone were wearing, quote, false eyebrows and false mustaches. What the right, fuck is right. that? It's not a Groucho Marx thing. I was like, no, let are me... those like comedy ones attached to glasses? No, I let me tell you what this is. According to the editor of my copy, Richard Maxwell. Oh, so... okay. 
He says it was to do with during the September massacres, mm-hmm. a bunch of like notable aristocrats were killed. One of them was some kind of like saintly woman aristocrat, mm-hmm. and supposedly, I think I think it's a myth, but supposedly they all like did stuff with her pubes. Oh no! So like wearing her pubes, I like jokes on them. That is not appropriate at the blood orgy. How are you going to make eye contact with anyone at the next one? So if you ever, if you ever were like, oh Dickens, he would never mention pubes. Here we go, <laughs> as plain as the pubes on your face. Can <laughs> we also just? This is the part where I started getting a bit annoyed with Dickens. Not that I'd ever defend the September massacres, right? <laughs> but Paris was. I don't want to say under siege, but there was a big Prussian army on the way to Paris, and there were a lot of aristocrats who were like, yeah, bring them on. Silence these brutes. You know, it's not surprising that this sort of thing would happen, but Dickens doesn't mention any of that. Apart from being hungry, he doesn't mention much context about why this happened. Like, there's a lot more to it than that. Voting rights and shit like that, you know, the... the Why couldn't we have had the tennis court oath? Is that what you're thinking? Well, but you know what I mean? Like, it's, Mm. it's such a multifaceted thing, and he's like... These people got a bit peckish and murdered everyone. Yeah, yeah. Can we also just briefly say, this is a, this actually comes up a bit later in the book, but it's probably worth mentioning now, that the Manettes bring Miss Pross with them to keep working as their servants, but she doesn't speak any French. <laughs> she calls it that nonsense. She hears every French person like Charlie Brown's French teacher. Manette goes to the prison and stays with Charles for four days, you know, trying to get him out of jail. Uh, trying to pull some strings, you know, because he's like a celebrity. Lucy, meanwhile, and Mr. Laurie have to sort of agonise over his absence. The revolutionaries killed 1,100 prisoners over the course of those four days, the September massacres, but Dr. Manette is able to keep Charles safe from that, but he also can't, like, get him freed. More time passes, and we get a few more grand narrative bits, don't we? So this covers the execution of Louis XVI, the Revolution of Canada, the war, the Levee en masse, and Dickens does it in his kind of nice bombastic ways. So we're in the reign of terror proper, and we get this entertaining introduction to the guillotine, the true heroine of the piece. <laughs> Finally, a hero emerges. Yeah, yeah, strong female figure, uh, for a role model for all, the, for all the girls. So above all, one hideous figure grew as familiar as if it had been before the general gaze from the foundations of the world. The figure of the sharp female called la guillotine. It was the sign of the regeneration of the human race. It superseded the cross. Models of it were worn on breasts from which the cross was discarded, and it was bowed down to and believed in where the cross was denied. It sheared off heads so many that it and the ground it most polluted were a rotten red. It hushed the eloquent, struck down the powerful, abolished the beautiful and the good. So it's been a year and three months that Darnay has been imprisoned, and Dr. Manette... He is better than ever. He is really having his sort of like Van Helsing old badass moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it is like that, yeah. Finally, Darnay is summoned up before the tribunal to state his case, right? So we get his, his big second trial of the novel. And he starts listing off all his street cred. Yeah, I gave up a huge fortune and a title before the revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I moved to England and earned my own money teaching snot-nosed Cambridge brats. Yeah, I married the daughter of a hero. So it's just a total Chad flex, and everyone starts cheering. He gets acquitted and freed. Hooray! He is the Klaus von Bülow of O.J. Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with me, Daniel? I don't know, What yeah. is wrong with me? I, I also cannot fathom what his marking situation is going to be like when he gets back to Cambridge. Oh, yeah, wow. This yeah. is like some Indiana Jones-level disregard of your <laughs> student's assessment. But Darnay's not home for very long, only a couple of hours before there's a knock at the door, and he's arrested again. 
So he has been, this time, personally denounced by the Defarges. They've got a murder scarf with his name on it. Literally. Because mm. that's normally a thing that people just say. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, out of nowhere, Sidney Carton, our vicious lawyer, our bootleg version of Darnay, our Eeyore with a neck tat, everyone's <laughs> dirtbag boyfriend, turns up in Paris. And he has a plan. So... Charles's retrial. It's the third trial in the book, let's all remember that. So, who denounces this man? The judge says. Three people. Ernest Defarge, wine guy. Therese Defarge, wine guy S. Uh, <laughs> and, who's this mysterious third party that's denounced him? It's Alexandre Manette, physician. <gasps> Huge live studio audience gasp. Yeah, shocking. I His know. own father-in-law? Manette's like, what? But I, I was his character in this. How could I have denounced my own son-in-law? Defarge is called to the witness box. He has a testimony written by Manette, reclaimed from his cell in the Bastille. Yeah, that's what Defarge was looking for when he went and stormed the place. How did he even know that was there? Stupid. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's just a stupid book. The, <laughs> the testimony was written in ink made of chimney soot and Manette's own blood. Because they read this testimony aloud. They read, you know, Dr. Manette's crazy letter that he wrote in prison. And it goes on for chapters. How does he have any blood left? Yeah, a lot of blood being spilt in this book. And unnecessarily, I might add, because <laughs> I didn't want to have to read all of this at the, the, the 11th hour. Oh my god, this goes on for so yeah, very long. long. Okay, so, Daniel, can you bottom line this shit for me? Because I don't got all day. That's not in my nature, but I'm going to try to. So, yeah, very long story short, Charles Darnay's uncle raped a peasant girl back in the day and they kind of sort of the hired goons came and kidnapped dr manette who back then was like a famous young doctor to try and heal her but she died anyway they also killed the brother who defended her and the brother gives his little story within a story that goes on a long time yeah and we're like come That's on crazy. Cut to the why chase. would you write in that way she died anyway the boy dies and manette gets thrown into the bastille by the marquis to just hush it all up here's the kicker everybody here's here's the the the, the booter Manet ends the letter by cursing the Saint-Evremonds and all their descendants. <gasps> yeah, so, i.e., that's Darnay, that's his, that's even Manet's own little granddaughter, Lucy. That's legally binding, I think. <laughs> a, a curse written in soot and blood. A trauma-laden therapy exercise written 30 years yeah, ago. Yeah, write a letter that you're not going to send. Yeah, it is like that, isn't it? <laughs> so, the, the Revolutionary Tribunal, I think that's cool, the mob, their brain. So... Darnay's condemned to death, and quote, within four and twenty hours. So, uh, I just don't really get Defarge's motives, because he's like, obviously he hates the aristocracy, and he, but also he likes Dr. Manette, and Dr. Manette wouldn't want to kill his son-in-law. So what's going on there? I mean, Madame Defarge has a real Lady Macbeth quality, yeah. so I, I sort of was under the impression that... It's more her fault. And, and he, he's, being, yeah. <laughs> he's okay. being swept up in all of this. So Carton is like, okay, yeah, there is no way this ends well. We have to get the hell out of France tomorrow. So he meets Mr. Laurie and he arranges some travel plans. Mr. Laurie is to take Dr. Manette, Lucy, and little Lucy to England at a set time. And they are to wait for absolutely nothing but for Carton's place in their travel arrangements to be occupied. Then Carton goes to jail to see Darnay. And Darnay, I don't think he knows Carton's even in France. He's like, what are you doing here? And Carton's like... I don't know. I typed asshole into my GPS and it led me here. Uh, hey, want to switch clothes? Well, it's not even the clothes, though, is it? 
The only difference between the two of them is that Dane ties his hair up, <laughs> Carton doesn't, and Carton's like, give me a scrunchie. <laughs> it's it's like a reverse 90s makeover montage where instead of ta- shaking your hair down from the ponytail, all he has to do is put his hair up and everyone goes, oh, you were beautiful yeah, all exactly. along. Yeah. yeah, it's, I mean, it happens, it all happens really fast. It's like a pit crew. They like swap, <laughs> swap looks. Now, Darnay, who has never been the brightest crayon in the box, he finally starts to suspect what's up, and he, he wants to refuse. He's like, oh, are you are you going to take my place in jail? But Carton's like, shut your beautiful pie hole. He takes out a little vial of chemicals that he got at the apothecary, and he chloroforms Darnay's ass. I was going to say, um, quiche hole. <laughs> Carton has Darnay smuggled out of prison, and he's sort of delivered into the carriage, and the family rushes off. We get this very sweet moment, don't we? Carton, he's now disguised as Darnay. He's like hanging around with the other 52 prisoners sentenced to die the next day. He's like, oh yeah, uh, Charles Darnay. A young woman who's there in jail earlier, she says like, yeah, I know what you've done. And what you're doing is very, very brave. (laughs) Très brave. Uh, Maybe we could hold hands and comfort each other until the end. They do. But So that means his costume isn't that convincing then. I mean... Even at death's door, Carton can't get a f***ing break. In my last moments, I don't want to have somebody say, you kind of look like a factory reject of the hotter guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, what the other guy? Yeah, the, be- the better guy. The cute guy. one. Yeah. I assume that the revolutionaries are just like, heads ahead. As long as we get, as long as we get them through there. It's about the throughput. You know, we cut back to the Manette slash Darnay family. They, they're like, oh, it's Darnay. Here it is. Put him in the carriage. They pass him off to the guards as a drunk and passed out Sydney Carton. They make a very tense escape. I do think this Weekend at Bernie's sequel is reaching a sort of diminishing return. Yes, indeed it is. It is like that. I also like that they've just kind of forgotten about Miss Pross. They're like, we'll pick her up later. Yeah, the scheme was to leave Miss Pross uh, <laughs> to, the, <laughs> to the mall. Okay, so Darnay and family, they're escaping in a carriage. Carton is in prison. We cut back to Madame Defarge who she's thinking a lot about her husband, and she's like, you know what, he's an okay revolutionary, but he's just not strong enough. We need more heads. Productivity is down. We should be (laughs) chopping ahead every 11 seconds. She is the Jeff Bezos of decapitation. So she especially wants the heads of Lucy's big and little. She and her sicko buddies talk about how pretty the golden hair would be once, you know, the heads are cut from Lucy's body. And so Madame Defarge is like, what if I go murder her myself now? Wouldn't that be a lark? Maybe maybe I'll just go do it myself. So Madame Defarge shows up at the Manette's Parisian home, not realizing they've already left for England. Miss Pross has been left behind to pack and catch a later coach. I mean, I guess they really don't care if she gets taken mm. by the mob, but fine. And like every serial killer movie ever, Miss Pross is washing her face in the bathroom, only to see a figure appear suddenly behind her in the mirror. Classic. And... Madame Defarge is like, hey, class trader Barbie and class trader Skipper, where are they? And Miss Pross's response is, fuck you, I'm English! So the, she didn't even understand what she said. Well, that's that, the funny thing. That's the best part, is that they're each speaking their own language, and they have no idea what the other one is saying, except they totally understand. Mm. So in a way, they're kind of doubles of each other. Yeah. So if we're talking about the doubling thing in this book. Yeah, Madame Defarge, sort of hyper-radical nutter. Miss Pross, hyper-reactionary sort of English mm-hmm. thug. Miss Pross puts Madame Defarge in, like, a half-Nelson, and I am barely exaggerating. Full Nelson. 
<laughs> be that Napoleon, or whatever the admiral was called. She tries to wrestle her gun free. He was a half guy, practically, by <laughs> Sorry, carry on. I didn't stop interrupting you. So That's later. Are you done? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. You're thinking about it. I can no, see you're thinking about it. You got real nerve. The admiral. The f- admiral. Damn it. Uh, where the f*** was they I? They have a fight. Yes, I'm trying to... She's trying to wrestle her gun free to shoot Miss Pross, but in doing so, Madame Defarge accidentally discharges her weapon and shoots herself. She dead! Miss mm. Pross keeps calm and carries on. She puts on a veil to hide her scratches and her black eyes. She keeps packing, locks up the house, brushes off her hands, doot doot goodbye. The only sad part is that Madame Defarge's gun going off in such close proximity made Miss Pross go completely deaf forever. Thanks for your service. Hope you get a hell of a workman's comp package from the doctor. Yeah. What about the queer reading when they're fighting? Miss Pross, with the vigorous tenacity of love, always so much stronger than hate, clasped Madame Defarge tight. It's a love for Lucy. He's yeah. wrestling with another woman thinking of another, another woman. Yeah. yeah. I don't think you were thinking of me at all. <laughs> uh, okay. We're getting down to it. It's all been leading up to this last chapter. Dickens gives us a fully operatic depiction of a guillotining, pruriently building up all the horror, while simultaneously very bombastically reproaching the revolutionaries and their love of violent spectacle. I mean, this has a real rowdy sporting event vibe, like vendors are walking around going, hot dogs, get your hot dogs, and people are doing the wave, and the decapitated heads are being broadcast on the jumbotron. Get, get your arm door yet. That's what it would be, wouldn't it? Anyway. The carts full of prisoners rumble from the conciergerie, the prison, to, to the Place de la Révolution. Carton, alias Darnay, alias Saint-Evremond, I thought that was interesting, all the kind of, the, everyone having these new names, is aboard one of these carts. The very dangerously politicised knitters are all there to see this aristo brought down, except Madame Defarge. So, you know, UAL asks the vengeance. It's not like Defarge to miss an execution, you know, ha ha ha, we know where she is. She did! Exactly. So Carton's neighbouring prisoner, this girl, this young seamstress, she's bewildered by her impending death, but she's all like, oh, it must be for the good of the people. You know, it's all very, you know, oh, she's so deluded and naive. <laughs> uh, it's very touching. Carton comforts the girl, who then, you know, gets her head lopped off. It's all very, and effectively, I might add, manipulative. Yeah, he's actually really good at this. Like, we put up with a lot of crap to get to this, but I was like, ooh, yeah, Dickens, manipulate Yeah, exactly, yeah. Carton goes to his death. And Dickens shares it with us, despite saying that, oh, no one would ever know what Carton's last thoughts were. So he sees into the future. First he sees the end of the terror, and then he sees the future of those whose lives he has laid down. Uh, Let's read the whole bit, please. Quote, They said of him about the city that night that it was the peacefulest man's face ever beheld there. Then the narrator gives us Carton's last thoughts. I see Barsad and Cly, Defarge and the Vengeance, the juryman, the judge, long ranks of the new oppressors who have risen up on the destruction of the old. I see a beautiful city and a brilliant people rising from this abyss, and in their struggles to be truly free, in their triumphs and defeats, through long, long years to come. I see the evil of this time and of the previous time of which this is the natural birth, gradually making expiation for itself and waning out. I see the lives for which I lay down my life, peaceful, useful, prosperous, and happy, in that England which I shall see no more. I see her, 
with a child upon her bosom who bears my name. I see that I hold a sanctuary in their hearts and in the hearts of their descendants generations hence. I see her, an old woman, weeping for me on the anniversary of this day. I see her and her husband, their course done, lying side by side in their last earthly bed. I see that child who lay upon her bosom and who bore my name, a man winning his way up in that path of life which once was mine. I see him winning it so well that my name is made illustrious there by the light of his. I see the blots I threw upon it faded away. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. The end. I'm feeling a bit tearful. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm getting a little tearful. Uh, so stupid as well. This is but... so... Okay, I've read this book three times in my life. Hmm. Every single time I have hated this book up until this, and it makes me cry. And I'm not a crier. I don't cry very easily, let alone at books. Yeah, I do. And I cried at this. I just want to give my alternative ending, mm -hmm. where it turns out that Carton's scheme was a double bluff, that he was pretending to be Darnay, pretending to be Carton. <laughs> he just comes and goes, hi, yeah, I'm Darnay, pretending to be Carton. And everyone's like, oh, how, how wonderful. And he just goes off and lives with Lucy. Regardless, what a coup for Lucy, though, to know that a man loved you enough to die for you. The swagger points she would have for the rest of her life to just go around going, he was obsessed with me. Yeah. Well, Daniel... I am as emotional as the Dickens. Wink. Very good. Would you like some casting? Yes, please. Stop. If you don't have one person playing Carton and Darnay. No. Good. Carry on. Okay. I really struggled with this because... Stop. <laughs> Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito as Carton and Darnay. I tried watching... Is it twins? twins? Yeah. I tried watching it and I couldn't make it more than like 10 minutes in. I was like, this movie is terrible. Yeah, but put, put a couple of uh, wigs on them, put do, <laughs> period, period drama it, and you've got a classy piece. I really struggled with this because the bad parts of the book are really bad and stupid, and I don't want to replicate them in a film, but the good parts of this book are so good. And I was trying to figure out who could take away all the bullshit and enhance the good stuff. So I don't want any of the gore or the hyper-sentimentality. What I want instead is the sort of creeping dread of a landscape very slowly changing around you and the sort of very complex, realist conversations that people have. So I'm going out on a really crazy limb here. Great. I want this to be a 1970s hyper-realist Peter Bogdanovich and Polly Platt movie, like Targets or The Last Picture Show or Paper Moon. And it'll have Sybil Shepherd as Lucy because she can play an ingenue without being annoying. And as our lookalikes, a young Kurt Russell as Darnay and a young Jeff Bridges as Carton. Because they do look alike. They look yeah. alike. Wow. Yeah, that's a good one. And but just that very sort of like reserved, stilted, yeah. very naked yeah. sort of film. And now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. You know what else was a romance story with a love triangle set as a period piece? Pearl Harbor. And I can't really separate the two now. God, I hate Dickens. God, I hate Michael Bay. Mm. One star. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. Dick man, I assume they mean Dickens, would just not shut up about that girl's forehead. Also, it was way too long. Probably could have been like 200 pages if he wasn't such a greedy bastard. Anyone who likes it is not a bad bitch. Sorry, I don't make the rules. <laughs> One star. Puking face emoji. One star. Yeah. 
Let's do some analysis. Doubles. France, England, Paris, London, Darnay, Carton, two Lucys. Der- and don't forget the Miss Prosper. Farge. The twins, the, the aristocratic twins. Yeah, two trials. Two legal systems, oh. the bloody code and the terror. Two branches of Telson's bank. Nice. Best of times, worst of times, all those dyads. So, what's going on there then? What's that for? The obvious thing is to sort of say, it's because they're so different. And then the slightly less but still pretty obvious thing is to say, but actually it's a way of showing they're not that different at all. Which is that first paragraph, isn't it? It was extreme, but also... Not that extreme, yeah. Yeah. It was the most extreme of times, it was the least extreme of times. Is that an extreme, though, to be the least extreme? (laughs) It's a superlative, I guess. It did read a little bit like the world's most boring track my ride account. Paris, London, London, Paris, Paris, Paris. For in another city. Come well, on. You had you had an idea that I want to talk about. Oh yeah. Which is that, and I, I think Dickens could have done a little bit more to make this a little bit more hyped up. But the idea of the secret thirds, the secret trebles. It's mm. not about doubles. It's about triples. Yeah. Because you have the American Revolution. Yeah. That they talk about in the beginning, and that sort of it's a little bit of a note through the beginning, but we lose a lot yeah, of it. Yeah, it, it goes after part. The three trials and the three courtships of Lucy. And also the three personas of Darnay. San Evremond, Darnay, and then... And then Carton. I just felt like he could have amped that up a little bit because the doubles are so heavy. This was something we discussed in the Twelfth Night episode where there are doubles and trebles kind of Mm. trying to reconcile themselves to each other and they can't. Mm -hmm. And that worked quite well there, but here you're right. Dickens maybe could stand to make it a little bit more... It's almost too perfect, isn't it, just having the doubles work so consistently. Mm-hmm. You need that sense of a, a system being fated to collapse. It's a very insular book, despite yeah. going between two countries. It feels very claustrophobic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're just stuck with... It's too self-contained, yeah. I mean, we get these great scenes of, you know, the sort of mob stuff, but those are pretty few and far between, and it mostly sticks with the Defarges and then the Manette's Darnays. That's a problem with historical novels, isn't it? That it's like... How oh, do you tell the story? Yeah. This How do you show history? Story, for yeah. Dickens, it's just like, you're on a dark ride, you know? You're mm-hmm. just on a little, like, car watching, like, waxworks of the storming of the Bastille, and you're like, ooh. Well, I had an idea, maybe, you know, when um, Peter Bogdanovich comes back to life, when he's recalled to life, and he, mm. makes, he makes my film version... Maybe they can fix this, but I had a better way of telling this story, a much scarier and, and more interesting and complex ways, which is we never go to Paris, ever. It's only English people hearing what's happening over there, and you get a lot of the sort of the politicized press and the rumor mills and, you know, and the sort of tensions, and maybe you hear stuff from Telson's Bank and... Yeah, that would know, be it's, cool. It's, yeah. It's, I think that's a, that's a more interesting way to do it rather than these huge schisms and then they mash up and you have Miss Pross wrestling the heroine of the revolution. It's a bit bit heavy-handed, isn't it? The the comparisons are too strong. Should we maybe talk about that, in fact? Like, why was he writing this? Didn't he write a book before? Barnaby Rudge, 1841, is a much earlier historical novel about the Gordon riots. I think he thought this didn't come off very well and I want to give historical novels another go. Carton and Darnay, what's going on with them? What's the point of them? So, yeah, you think that Carton's just a pure figure of depression. A lot of people question what are they doing with their lives and what is the purpose of it all and what is the point. We can all probably get something out of Sidney Carton. We've all been there. I know what you mean. It's just felt like a cheating thing in Dickens to kind of, where everything else is so interconnected mm-hmm. and we didn't even talk about all the kind of missing brothers and ridiculous things. Oh, like there that. are a lot of coincidences yeah. in this. Yeah, love And then you just got this guy that's just like, 
yeah, I'm not really very happy. And, you know, it just felt a bit kind of like, come on, you could try and think of a little bit more. Like, everybody else has a motive and, and Carton just doesn't have a motive. But then I kind of thought maybe that was the point and I was wondering, because Dickens also doesn't really have a very good sense of what the French Revolution was for, just a mm -hmm. lot of people who were resentful and it just, everything went too far. And I kind of thought he just, and this is in his other books as well, that sense just like of a kind of very like primal need for sacrifice. Mm -hmm. It's almost like Carton is just born with a death wish. And it almost mm -hmm. feels like France just has a death wish. It's just like people need to yeah. die. I just feel like he's just, this is kind of like, it's almost like a Freudian thing, isn't it? Mm. Just that the force of death is there in Carton and in France. He sort of faces down the firing squad, as it were, when he confesses to Lucy, knowing there's no hope. Mm. I wanted to get more about Carton's dissipation. Yeah. Because it would make his sacrifice a little bit worth more if we knew why he was so dissipated, why he fell into low company, why he was a drunk, yeah. rather than just, well, like his name, I'm useful but hollow. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, I was wondering that too. That's what I was wondering when it said the low company. Like, maybe another novelist would have shown him in the bordellos. Not, not even that, but just like, what does he, you know, if, if it's sort of like CD friends or something, if he's, you know, what does he get from that? Yeah. And I think that's the key is what is he getting from these moments? Even when he drinks. Yeah. We don't really, we don't really, yeah. we don't really get any sense of why. He is just um, Dickens trying to do a Byronic hero. But Dickens yeah, trying to do a Byronic hero is hilarious. Like, what the hell is that? That's yeah. really funny. Uh, yeah, the Brontes are there reading this going, what is this piece of exactly. shit? Exactly, yeah. Put Carton in a room with Heathcliff and Rochester and, well, <laughs> two guys are coming out of that room. <laughs> the heavy-handed metaphors are classic Dickens, yes. though, especially because... Some of them he used really, really well. I mean, not like the footsteps bullshit or all the recalled to life stuff. I mean, we, you know, there's, there's a, especially if we get into Jerry Cruncher, which we didn't talk about at all in the recap, he's a resurrection man. So he basically would go around digging up bodies from freshly laid mm. graves to sell their corpses to medical schools. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that like plays into the whole like brought back to life sort of stuff. I don't know, like, the, the metaphors here are really hit and miss. Like, I kind of think he just threw some darts at the metaphor catalogue and is like, yeah. that'll, that'll do. How about some advice, then? Yes, please. So, you should always pay attention to when a text was written versus the time period it's set. Because authors from all different time periods fetishize the past or try to comment on it the same way we do today. I mean, today it's all about, what, like, the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. They're really obsessed with reliving that. That says more about where we are today than it does authentically about that time. It says more about Dickens' time. Stuck in a neoliberal hell. <laughs> yeah, go on, carry on it. So just, like, pay attention to that. Right. Our clue to the next episode. So unlike Dickens's like, dumb echoes of the footsteps of the past, you know, all that crap, the footsteps thing. Turkey. How about we have a footprint that actually means something? Yes, please. Just one, though. Our next book will have a single footprint in the sand. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Please write into our email or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Subscribe wherever you listen. Just do it. Helps us out. Helps other people find us. Uh, right. And do you have any final points before I cut your head off? Um, as Monsieur Defarge would put it, to the re-seeing. We didn't talk about that in our recap, so that doesn't make any sense. Has it not? Do you want to try a different goodbye just in case? No. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. 
Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.